Today's Bible reading is taken from Acts chapter 8, 1 to 25. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralysed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practised sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptised, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them, and they had simply been baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Well, good morning. Thank you so much for tuning in to be with us this morning as we continue looking the, at the book of Acts. We'll be looking together at that bit of the Bible that's just been read to us. So do please keep that open or keep it switched on on your phone. Uh, hello, if you're a young person or a child, um, thank you for uh, listening in as well. And um, oh, I should have said, my name's Morris. I'm one of the leaders at Christchurch. I'll be walking us through this bit of Acts this morning. So thanks for giving us your time. Let's pray as we look at God's word together. Thank you, Lord, for this amazing true story of how the gospel spread. We thank you that it shows us both the good and the bad. 
Things are incredibly encouraging and also very realistic and we pray by your spirit you'll speak to us this morning. Fill us with your spirit and with wisdom like those first Christians we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well there is a Christian author, um, a really great sort of godly, nice person as far as I can tell from a distance. Um, I like his books because in many ways he's just a normal church pastor um, he doesn't he's not a sort of celebrity Christian and this week uh, he um, he's retired and his books have helped me trust Jesus this week it's come into the sort of newspapers in America where he's from that his son who's a bit younger than me has begun making a living by running a hugely followed Instagram account in which he makes fun of his Christian upbringing now, I cannot imagine what it's like as a dad to experience that, especially in the sort of public gaze that being a, a famous Christian author would put on you. So that's awful in itself, the tragedy of it. But more than that, it sort of makes you doubt, doesn't it? Is, is the message powerful if someone who's clearly brought up in a very sound, godly, nice family wants to make fun of it? Well, you know, what hope is there for sort of normal people? Why spread the gospel when the people who know it best humiliate the people who taught it to them? What chance have any of us got of making go of the Christian thing? What chance have any of us got of being ra seeing radical conversions to new life if even this person doesn't keep walking with Jesus? This person who was soaked in a sound, godly version of the gospel with prayerful, loving parents his whole life, as far as we can tell, that isn't disputed, but who's got sucked into this culture that we live in now of critique and cynicism and sexual permissibility. That was so strong it pulled him away. What, what hope is there for anyone else we might share the gospel with? Now, the internet is full of Christian internet warriors debating whether or not this man was ever truly a real Christian. To me, that's none of our business. We have no idea how his story will end. But it is disappointing and discouraging, even from a distance, never mind what it must be like for his family. Well, the early church we've seen in Acts chapter 7 faced the struggle of persecution. Acts chapter 8 is really about the struggle of disappointment. That people we thought were really on board become people who don't care and undermine the message of the gospel. For us, I guess, in 21st century Britain, that's actually a harder, more real struggle in some of the persecution that the early church faced. But they faced this one too, that dis crushing disappointment and sadness about people you thought were real Christians turning their backs and actually making a mockery of the faith. But before we even get into the story, I want to be upfront. There's a punchline to all of this, a truth. Luke records this deep disappointment in the middle of the progress of the church, but it doesn't stop the progress of the word. And it didn't stop the early church continuing with God's plan. And so whatever disappointment we face with people, it shouldn't stop us either. 
Well, way back at the start of Acts, Jesus said the Holy Spirit would fill his disciples and they'd take the gospel to Judea, Samaria and the ends of the earth. And Acts 8 is the first story of the gospel pushing into the second level, Samaria. So far we've been in Judea, now we're crossing a barrier into Samaria. And Samaria was like a sort of breakaway kingdom of Israel. They'd set up their own temple, which was bad as far as Judaism was concerned, and they got embedded in their spirituality some pretty weird practices. We're going to see a bit about that. And the main thing going on in this story is this, that the gospel, with the help, with the power of the Holy Spirit, moves across that barrier into that area. The message moves with great effect into a more godless and more pagan culture, and many people there trust Jesus. And a real church is formed, and the first followers come and see it and approve it as a real church. That's the main thing going on. But Luke then, for some reason, chooses to zoom in on one very disappointing story. Someone who appeared to be a sort of trophy convert, a model of what the gospel can do, but in fact, under the surface, is just using it for his own ends and is sucked, sucked back into the culture that he came from. And if you've ever wanted to stop being a Christian who points people to Jesus because even Christians have let you down, well, this section is for you. It's a very hard thing to happen, but it's good to know the progress God is pushing on to with his spirit will never be undone by the true and sad and disappointing stories. But before we get to disappointment, we, get, we start where we left off last week with persecution. Stephen, one of the first Christians, had given this speech depending trust in Jesus from the Bible, and he has been murdered, and the church is dealing with the consequences. And this is the first thing that we see. They were mourning and trusting. You may have noticed in your own life or in the life of others that once people do something really bad, things which aren't quite as bad as that become much more easy to them. So once you cross the line and you lose the temper with your children, being a bit passive aggressive with your children becomes much easier. Or once you insult your spouse to their face, being niggy with them all the time becomes easier. That's sort of what goes on with the religious leaders in this bit of Acts. They kill Stephen. A terrible thing to do. And that allowed them to go around doing things which were bad, if not quite as bad, dragging the Christians off to prison and persecuting them. And there's this shadowy figure of evil called Saul, who's determined, the passage tells us, to destroy the church in verse 3, dragging off men and women and putting them in prison. I don't want to be sexist, but generally I think it's considered pretty bad form to drag off both men and women to prison for their religious beliefs. It's merciless. It's awful. It's wicked. What is the outcome for the children? It's a terrible thing to do. Meanwhile, verse 2 tells us that godly people buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. I've mourned the death of a young and promising brilliant Christian leader. It was pretty grim. I cannot imagine the depth of grief and despair when one of your best people is killed in the process of declaring their faith. What a tragic waste they must have thought. It's just terribly, 
awfully sad. This good man who just wanted to offer something brilliant to his own people is dead and his death has opened the floodgates for the whole church to be dragged off to prison. Everything we've read about for the first eight chapters built so carefully and lovingly in Jerusalem, the people loving and serving each other and spreading the message of the gospel all destroyed. The, per the birthplace of this revival where the Spirit has brought life to thousands, this amazing community where the poor looked after and people from all backgrounds were welcome to lead and grow has been crushed and broken and this brilliant leader is dead. It's bad. It comes from evil. It's heartbreaking. It's wrong. And yet, those who had been scattered in verse 4, that is, cast out from their homes and left with nothing, they preached the gospel wherever they went. Now, humanly speaking, I cannot think of anything I would feel less like doing if I was in that situation. Really? I'm going to preach this word that got me into trouble? What's more, to be honest, I think I'd be feeling a little bit annoyed with God. If you really wanted us to do this, you'd have protected us. You'd have protected our dear friend Stephen while he was doing it. And yet this command from Jesus himself was to keep doing this beyond Jerusalem. And they were so filled with God's presence that that is what they stepped out and did. They took this terrible situation as an opportunity to get on with that. No, I think Christians get a lot of this wrong. There are some people, and they like to take easy comfort, usually for the sake of others, to be honest, to try and help others, to say, well, God is in control. So suffering, particularly unfair suffering for doing the wrong thing, it's not that bad because God is in control of it all. God will use it. God will control it. And then it you sort of feel like, is mourning bad? Is being overcome by the tragedy of this injustice, is it, is it wrong to feel like that? It's almost as if these people are saying, oh, well, men and women are being dragged off to prison. But, you know, because Jesus, it's not that bad. Rather, the Bible tells us to weep with those who weep. To mourn when wicked people do evil things that hurt others. We support as a church a charity called Open Doors, which helps persecuted Christians. And I heard someone from that charity uh, talking once and saying, oh, sometimes when they try to get help for persecuted Christians, people say, oh, well, persecution helps the church grow. Can't you see it in Acts 8? Well, yes, we will get to that. But, you know, just because God brings good things out of bad things, we're still allowed to say those things are bad. We're still allowed to mourn the evil of it. So if you're a Christian who has experienced hard things, either for being a Christian or just because life is hard, you might have felt like Christians being a bit twee with you. Christians saying, oh, well, God will work it for good. And I just want to say sorry if you've not had room to mourn. And I'd much rather we mourned with you like the godly people mourned over dear Stephen being killed. And I'd rather we named the evil of whatever's been done to you like Luke 
named Saul's evil, dragging men and women off to prison. But there are also Christians who say, who get this wrong, by saying, basically, my life has been too hard to obey God's command to share the gospel wherever I am. I can't be expected to get on board with that, with this spirit-filled, joy-filled sharing of the gospel, because look, I've been through this. And actually it does say, listen, whatever you've been through, no one's saying it's okay. No one's saying you shouldn't mourn it. No one's saying it's not bad, but the Spirit offers the possibility, the power of the Holy Spirit, the grace of Jesus, that those bad things can be used for good, that you can step out and use whatever's happened to you to point to Jesus like these first Christians. To be honest, this is more the way I'm wired to give up at the first hurdle. Oh, everything's too hard for me to be able to get on with that, taking the gospel to people. Maybe you're one of those Christians. Maybe you've been too twee. God will work it for good. Maybe you've been too defeated. Oh, well, it's all too hard for me to join in. You do occasionally find, don't you, lovely Christians who've been through more than we can imagine and yet still love pointing people to Jesus. Aren't they life and pleasure to be with? Like Philip in this story. I remember hearing a lady speak once called Helen Rosevere. She's died now, she's with the Lord. And she was a pioneer missionary doctor in an African country. And at one point she was attacked by extremists and harmed you know, in the worst way you could imagine. And I went to hear her speak to hear her story, thinking I was going to hear her story all about that. And she stood up and she said, I know you're all here to hear my story, but to be honest, while I've got you all sitting here, I would just love to tell you about Jesus and how wonderful he is. All of us were like, she was just life-giving to be with. The spirit was filling her and her wisdom was pouring out to us. That's, the, that's what's going on in Acts 8, as these are scattered and it's terrible, but they bravely take Jesus. So we don't pretend bad things are okay. We mourn them, but we also trust and say God is using this to give me opportunities to point to Jesus and to bring beauty and peace and grace and goodness to the world. And I wonder how he's calling you to do that today. Here's the second thing we see, that they were pushing boundaries. Philip, who's not one of the original apostles, but one of the Greek Jews who's been brought into church leadership back in chapter 6, he heads into Samaria. Now, Jesus had said this would happen, but it is still shocking that it's happening. So back in the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, there was a split into the northern and southern kingdoms. Israel and Judah and the northern kingdom began to set up basically its own sort of roughly based but only roughly based religion that departed from what they'd been given in the scriptures and they tended these Samaritans to be regarded by sort of uh, very observant Jews as even worse than total pagans because they knew some of the truth and they ignored it. You may have heard the story of the Good Samaritan, and that's why that story is shocking to Jesus' original hearers, as he told us. They didn't believe in Good Samaritans. 
But we see here that Philip goes to this place, Samaria, and he brings all the blessings of God's kingdom, all the freedom from evil spirits, the healing of diseases from these people. All of that comes with the gospel to this troubled country in just as much way as it had in Jerusalem. Exactly the same blessings that were there in Jerusalem come to Samaria too. The good stuff of the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> it just spreads. It doesn't respect boundaries. This good stuff doesn't come to preferential treatment for those who've been faithful in the past or from the right families or in the right people group. No, the Spirit is always pouring out over boundaries to the people that we tend to think are not that great. And maybe you've ended up in life, by the way, somewhere you didn't really want to be, and it feels spiritually pretty dark there. You know, you're you need somewhere you didn't want to be, you're working somewhere you didn't want to be, you've ended up in a home or a marriage you didn't want to be. It's much darker than you thought. This encourages you to be alive to what God might be doing there and to join in. The good stuff, the blessing of the Spirit could come out of you to that place in the way it did with to Philip in this strange place to him, Samaria. And it is a dodgy place to Samaria because they seem to be highly into the occult, into magic. And they are all following this man, Simon, the magician, the sorcerer. And they all think he's great because somehow in a sort of weird, I think dark way, he's doing all of these Miracles. But he sees this power that Philip has is even greater than his own power. And so he believes. So this persecution that happened in, in Jerusalem, this bad and evil, terrible thing, has led to a sudden sort of short circuit jump from the gospel going to observant Jewish people to and near the temple gathered around there jumping to the much more dodgy Samaritans, including occult practitioners. I mean, it's an amazing jump and change how the gospel goes over those barriers in the power of the Spirit. And it's so amazing and almost unbelievable that Peter and John are sent down from Jerusalem to, to, to check it's actually real. They get there and this odd situation unfolds. These people have believed, but they haven't, and they've been baptised, but they haven't yet received the Holy Spirit. And that is odd because back in Acts 2, the promise was that anyone who believes and baptised received the Holy Spirit. But it seems on just this one occasion, the Holy Spirit is held back so that Peter and John can give their approval. So it shows this is not two separate churches, a Jerusalem church and a Samaritan church. But no, it's all one continuing work of the Spirit and the Jerusalem apostles recognise that and are identified with these Samaritans who've up to them for them are total heretics and who they didn't want to be with. The same Spirit is poured out on the Samaritans. That great divide that has surfaced throughout the Bible is healed brought together. And God, see, it seems, just on this one occasion, has held back his spirit so the original church people are there when they receive the spirit, so that that's clear. There's one global church in which Jews and Samaritans stand before God equally. Listen, there is so much that goes on in the world that I want to mourn over, 
and that I don't understand and that makes me sad and crushed and could push what really matters out of my vision. But actually it says that goes on and it's hard and it's horrible. But it goes on in the context of this, that God's spirit has been poured out. So something is always happening, something good. God's spirit is always pushing out to new, to unlikely, maybe even to us unsavoury characters. And we can always join in with that, no matter how bad the situation. And we're not reaching those people so they can then join some separate church for people like that that we're not connected to. But to join the one true church that every Christian belongs to when they receive God's Spirit. So whatever sad and difficult thing you're dealing with today, and there will be plenty of those, God is working through, behind, all the time so that those people, whoever they are to you, can hear and repent and be filled with the Spirit and join the same church as us. You know, I think we are at risk of not really getting what a visceral, off-putting thing this would have been to the Jerusalem apostles to go and see the blessings they had share with Samaritans and then lay hands on them and touch them and identify with them. Well, I say we would know. I think there maybe is a little bit of that, uh, a little bit of that sometimes in our church of like, oh yes, it's fine for those people to become Christians. I hope they do. But it's weird for them to be in church with us. And actually it says that it's not weird. One spirit, one church. While I'm sometimes like that, in my best moments, I'm just amazed and I'm lost in worship that this is what we are giving our lives to. This boundary breaking, ever outward moving community. God gives us that job that we can always be getting on with no matter what else is happening in the world. There's always something good and amazing to do that God is doing that we can join in with. It's, a, it's awesome. No matter how bad the thing you're facing today, you can join in with this brilliant thing if you are a Christian who's trusted Jesus and received the Holy Spirit. And that, frankly, is where I would have stopped this story. But Luke does not. Instead, he restore, records the story of just at this key moment that this amazing thing has happened, the early church faces disappointment. It's the third thing we see, facing disappointments. So here is Simon, the ex-sorcerer. He's like one of those really dramatic testimonies that you get to give at evangelistic events, isn't he? I used to be into this really evil thing and now the power of Jesus has freed me from it. He's a trophy of this truth that the spirit breaks boundaries. He's made the apostles change their mind to include everybody in the church. This Samaritan occultist is now a Christian. That is a great one to write in their letter back to the Jerusalem church, isn't it? Except it turns out... He hasn't changed at all. He was used to charging people money for his weird occult activities. And he sees the apostles bring the Holy Spirit. 
and he doesn't rejoice that this new work of God includes him in God's family, he sees a chance to make money again. It's awful. The Holy Spirit, the presence of God himself, shut away in the temple for as long as these people knew, was poured out on people who returned to God. What a world-changing moment that that's happening outside of Jerusalem. And Simon sees a chance to make a bit of money, to set up the business he had before. He'll bung the apostles a few quid, and he can set up a Holy Spirit franchise. It's all the things, isn't it, about this culture that the original apostles would have hated. Everything they suspected of Samaritans, Simon does. He doesn't really respect God. This godless culture is interested not in the true faith, but in power and self-promotion and money. And we thought Simon had been won and converted out of that, but looks like he hasn't. And poor old Peter has to pick up the mess. Notice that Philip, who did the actual evangelising, just seems to have disappeared. And it's Peter who has to say this incredibly firm thing. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. He's incredibly firm, but I don't think he would have enjoyed saying it. He has to front up to Simon and say, it's evil for you to use God's generous gift of the Spirit and try to make money from it. Your heart is all wrong. Go and sort it out. The fact you've asked this shows you're still totally captive to sin. How disappointing. They went out on a limb here, welcoming this pagan sorcerer into their church. And turns out that he, whether knowingly or not, was faking it. How gutting. Because this converted occultist should have been the best illustration of the power of the Holy Spirit they had. You know, he's gone from evil spirits to uh, serving the Holy Spirit. But instead, Peter ends up in a heartbreaking pastoral meeting taking him right back to square one, saying, your heart's totally messed up, you need to repent. Why is, did Luke uh, leave this in the story? It's such a downfall, such an anticlimax. Did we really need to know about this one guy? Well, he's put it in there to warn us that every time the gospel crosses cultural boundaries, some person fakes a conversion in order to use Christianity to grow their own power. That shouldn't shock us and shouldn't make us doubt our faith. Roman emperors, as soon as they realised Christianity was the winning side, they all became Christians. British kings wanting divorces. The Reformation, the true gospel, was spreading across Europe, and oh, suddenly the British king's in favour of it to get his divorce. People uh, take the message of the gospel to poor countries and then some people start teaching a prosperity religion which allows them to make money. It's depressing, but it always happens. The amazing story that the Spirit can and does now break every boundary to go to everyone is marred by this mess. 
this moment of salvation history, laying hands on the Samaritans so they receive the Spirit, is followed up by a tear-filled meeting with someone trying to exploit the poor people in the church. And Luke is saying the pushing forward of the gospel is marked always by this type of disappointment. In fact, it's a sort of sign that it's working because you break new ground. Not only does every culture find ways to express worship to Jesus in a new way, every culture finds new ways to reject Jesus and to mix the message in with their culture. And some apparent converts will always be sucked back into the culture they came from. So back to what I talked about at the beginning, we shouldn't be shocked, even if we're saddened that famous Christian authors' kids use TikTok to criticise their upbringing. They're still sucked into the godless culture they live in rather than the truth they've been taught. It happens. We should be sad but not shocked when people who previously led churches turn out to just want the same thing, sex and money as the world around them want, and so they they quit. We should be saddened but not shocked that people who helped and encouraged us by their stories of conversion end up getting sucked back into the world they came from. You may even have ended up in Peter's seat trying to convince them it's wrong. And if that's you, you'll know how much fun that isn't. We've had the experience in our church of a big group of people from one particular background who all started coming at once. And it turned out that some of them, by no means all, but some, actually were pretending, had fake conversions to try and get something they wanted out of the church. I don't know whether it was calculated or not. What a sad end to the story. Except it's not the end of the story. Because what Simon says back to Peter here is really not very clear. Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me so nothing you have said may happen to me. He's definitely not repentant. He's definitely not, oh, I must pray for the Lord to forgive me. There's still some respect for Peter in the message of the gospel there. Is he going to turn back or not? We never find out. We never hear about him again. A lot of the books written about Acts are very sort of focused on was he a real Christian or not. To me, that's the wrong question. We don't get to hear the end of his story. There's only one who knows the end from the beginning. We know the truth that no one can go so far that they can't come back. And so we know that when this happens to people, we know we should do everything we can not to cast out and spurn them, but to be ready to welcome them back when they come. And we don't know, no matter how bad it looks now, what the end of their story will be. We shouldn't start labelling them and pushing them out. The author's kid or the fallen church leader or the deceitful church member who then leaves. It's hard, it's disappointing, but we do not know the end of the story. To theologise, to work out what's happened to them Christian-wise, that's not our job. Our job is to do the Peter thing, to call for repentance and be ready to accept that however it looks sooner or later. You know, one reaction can be, to this happening. Well, 
That's what happens when you let people like that into our church. I have even heard that said in our own church family, I'm sorry to say. Another reaction could be, well, is there any point in keeping going if the converts are so few and far between and then it turns out even some of the few converts are fakers? Shouldn't we just give up? It's interesting, after all of this, Peter and John began the long walk back to Jerusalem. They didn't stop. They found more Samaritan villages on the way so they could preach the gospel there. So those people who they'd been so let down by, they could have turned against, they could have said, what is the point in evangelising these people? They did the exact opposite. They pushed on to bring the gospel to more of them, even though that might be more Simons in the church. We push on to glorify Jesus and point people to him, even when Christians let us down. Despite the fact it's messy and painful and disappointing. Despite the fact that for some people we tell the gospel to, the pull of the culture there it's soaked in is too strong. And despite the fact that's creating painful work for us of calling people to repentance, intense, horrible meetups with them. It all looks so hard, but there is an undeniable fact that God wants people like that in his church. He is offering the reality of his spirit just as much as them to us, to that person, as to me. Yes, the advance will be messy. The story of every letter in the New Testament is that there is a battle in people between what they have left behind and what they've trusted in now. And we don't get to stop simply because of disappointment in that. And of course we remember that, like with Simon, who's a, we don't know the end of his story, we don't know the end of anyone's story. So we don't write people off. We continue to pray for them, and we continue to push the barriers that the Spirit is pushing. Listen, we now live in our country, in the West really, in a post-Christian world. So a generation ago, people's view of the world was very shaped by Christianity. They understood what we we're talking about. It's now much more like being Jews going to Samaritans. Uh, we all know what we're talking about. The, the world has no clue. And so we get the amazing privilege of crossing cultural barriers with the message all the time if we choose to and seeing what God does in these cultures that are really alien to the church is exciting, but it will be messy because that you know, godless culture people are in is strong and it pulls at them. But, Acts 8 says, whether it's persecution or whether it's disappointment, God will not be stopped. And so we should not be stopped. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, so much for putting this a weird but realistic story into the Bible. We thank you that you see evil and recognise it. We thank you that your response to that is always to push over more boundaries. We thank you that you are not stalled by things that we find disappointing. We pray with whatever love your spirit can give us for the people who've disappointed us, knowing that you know the end of their story. And we pray for us 
please will we be people who push on in the power of the Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.